Welcome to episode 26 of the Rainbow Pridecast. I'm your host, Danielle Dupuis, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Co-hosting with me today is... My Gabriel Porter, and I use the pronouns he, him, and his. And today we are joined by Storm Hogan, advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. Welcome to the Pridecast, Storm. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, Storm, it's been it's been a few years since I've seen you in person um, uh, around the halls at Hammond High School, and uh, even longer, way longer, um, since I met you when you were a youngster at um, an elementary school coming into the media center. Um, tell us, can you talk a little bit about kind of your experience in school and growing up? Yeah, um, so I'm... My, when I refer to my parents, like what that word means is my mom and my grandma, and that's who I've lived with for pretty for my whole life. And actually, when I when I first met you way back in the day in another lifetime in elementary school, we had just moved to Maryland for the first time when I was eight. Um, after we'd like been moving around a lot as my mom was finishing her education. Um, oh, wow! I didn't know that. That's yeah, cool. it was it was really cool, and it was very it was the first time actually like I'd really been in a place where I was able to read. So that was really significant for me um and so you know I grew up with a very tight family you know the three it was always sort of felt like the three of us against the world you know and I'm really grateful for that um and I think because there were so few of us my my parents were always really big believers in you know just inviting anybody to be a part of our family which I always loved which I, I always found it really interesting later in the queer community finding out this idea of like a chosen family being you know, a very queer centered kind of thing. Whereas like for me, mm-hmm. that's, that was really like what I grew up with was like my mom talked about chosen family a lot. You mentioned about being able to kind of read for the first time. Was there something that prohibited you from, you know, finding books before you arrived yeah, in Maryland? Unfortunately, yeah. Like before that we lived in this, um, you know, little like 400 people like wheat farming town in Washington state while my mom was going to grad school. Mm-hmm. And we were definitely like the outcast in a lot of ways. I think my mom was probably one of only a couple moms in the town who worked. Um, but it was, she was also certainly the only person in town who was divorced, um, which was a big deal there. And we we're also the only people in town who didn't go to church every Sunday, which was an even bigger deal. So I didn't have, you know, I was pretty ostracized um, at my school and, you know, I had learned to read at home, you know, mom and grandma had like set aside the time to, to teach me and I'm very fortunate about that. But the way that the, the media center worked, the way that the education there worked was very rigid. So like I had to like, I will, you know, I distinctly remember like going into the library and like they had these like colored boxes and like I had to read like a certain number of books like in order out of like the little colored boxes, even though I was already way beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so only when I could like sneak into the library when like my teacher wasn't there, but like just the librarian was there when like she would let me take out whatever I wanted. Um, But it was just always kind of a fight, you know, getting me to do things or like getting me to like allowing me to, you know, explore what I wanted to um, Mm -hmm. in a library. And we didn't really have a good public library around in that town either so that was kind of my only access to books really and it wasn't until moving here and I think actually I was here I think it was my second year here when you started working 
And so I was still sort of adjusting that first year. And it wasn't until like fourth grade and fifth grade that I kind of had real books in my hands and was able to to actually discover a love of reading finally. Um, since it had been just like, you know, one frustration after another trying to get a hold of, of things that I liked for so long. Oh, wow. So you really had an appreciation for books once you were able to get your hands on them and have access to so many. Um, I just remember you as such a, you were such a smart, you know, little kid and you were, I mean, you would just like come bounding into the media center, like, you know, what's the next thing I can read? I read all these already, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, well, how about this one? And how about this one? You're like, well, I read all those already. And I'm like, okay, well, how about this one? And how about this one? And it was just like, I could never keep you in books. It felt like, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I remember the first time we walked away from there, my mom had like a little notebook with a list of like 30 books that that you'd recommended and she was like this is amazing and I think I like probably read them all in like the next month or something right but it was really fast um was do you think your love of books is what led you to um working in the library later on um I mean I think that like working at a library I loved it because of my love of books I think that my love of mm-hmm. books led me to probably more to like wanting to study um, history, you know, for me and, and like wanting to, to make that into my career, I think definitely started from a place of, of loving books. But I think for me, like, like books are like, like I love books because I love stories and I love stories because I find, I love people, right? Like I find people interesting and I love people's stories mm-hmm. really interesting. And even books that are fiction, right are both fiction and not right because they're like about people and about an author's perspective Mm -hmm. on people Mm -hmm. which is just as interesting as the story itself and so Mm -hmm. I think that for me like my love of teaching and my love of history and my interest in people and working with people and talking to people are all kind of wrapped up in my love of stories you know which is which is where very much where my my love of books comes from Mm mm-hmm um what are you reading right now if you have any recommendations for what i could read next um i'm both the best and the worst person to ask for recommendations from (laughs) Uh, because there's so many books out there and it's very much to the taste of the person but right now i'm reading i actually just finished i'm taking one of my classes i've read it for one of my classes parable of the sower by octavia butler which is a very uh timely book Mm. to be reading right now i think in in ways in a way that's difficult i think to get through it um because it feels a little bit too kind of prescient but it's also one of the things i love about butler is that she's so clear-eyed i think about people and how people work and so the book you know, I think that what I, one of the things I really like about the book is it's not a hopeful book, but like not in a bad way. Like I think the book kind of makes you feel like neither hope nor despair is useful, right? It's about empowering yourself and like setting out to shape the world is kind of what she talks about in that book. And I, I found that really powerful to be reading in this moment. So, and you're also a writer too, right? Um, I write, I haven't written fiction or poetry in a very long time, but I primarily write, you know, in like a, uh, in my like either academic context, I guess. Um, but making, 
my goal one day, right, is to allow, is to be able to write in a way that makes like really complicated things a lot easier to communicate, right? Like easier to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's like the dream is to be able to get paid money to do that. (laughs) That'd be awesome. I know I always had a hard time um, in school and some of the, like when we're just talking about history or learning about history and everything, you know, back when I was in school was very like, okay, then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And it was so dry and so boring. And, um, you know, I think recently for, even for myself, um, I just have started to get into like a love of history and enjoy enjoying history because there are so many different writers that now, you know, write it with a new perspective and actually tell a story. And it makes it much more engaging when you are listening to or reading a story, somebody else's personal story, um, which is why, you know, Hamilton and, um, you know, stuff like that is so popular now. I feel like, oh, it's history, but it's a story, you know, and now it's a musical, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or there's, what's that? There's a really great musical that unfortunately was about to go on Broadway right before coronavirus hit. That's about um, the wives of Henry VIII. Highly recommend it. Um, yeah, I hear that from adults actually like all the time where I'll hear about, you know, how frustrating history was learning about it growing up and then finding, refining a love and an interest in it later. And, and so many times I'll say, I'll st- I, you know, when I'm studying history and they'll go, wow, I really wish I had done that. I really wish I had had the chance to be interested in it earlier, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in college. Um, Cause really like when you take history classes in, in college, they kind of are just like, okay, so forget everything you think you know, because it's all wrong. <laughs> and let's mm-hmm. start over is <laughs> pretty much how it goes. Mm-hmm. And some a lot of the uh, a lot of the history, you know, I feel like is um, it depends on who's writing the story in the perspective of, uh, you know, that those particular events. Um, so it's kind of it's really good to be able to get a variety of perspectives um, and stories from people that were there at the time like if there's documentation of you know those people and a variety of those people not just like you know one side of the story um so yeah that's and we need cool. a variety of people asking questions i feel very strongly like just as a, a personal sort of philosophy not just with history but that questions are really important and that questions are a lot more important than answers in a lot of ways And that learning how to ask questions and learning how to ask good questions is a really difficult skill and is a really difficult thing to do because we also, you know, in a lot of ways as a culture kind of, we don't encourage it in many situations. We don't encourage questions. We don't encourage good questions. Mm -hmm. And a big part of what's important to me about history is having different voices asking new questions that have never been asked before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's kind of how I approach, you know, when I do my workshops or when I do teaching and stuff too, is like, I'm not here to give you the answers, right? Like I'm not here to necessarily say concretely, right? What is correct and incorrect, right? My goal is I want people to kind of learn how to reapproach the practice of a- asking questions. Cause it is like a practice that like you have to engage in actively. And I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. I think you make a great point in that, it is a practice and it is something that you have to do actively and conscientiously, um, you know, all the time. And I feel like, you know, 
even with, with like our political climate, if you look at it, you know, things from that perspective is that a lot of times people stop asking questions and they're just like, okay, I'm just going to go with, you know, the flow here and, you know, pick the person that, you know, is my party line or whatever, and just go with it instead of like, okay, well, what is it, you know, what is it that they, I think, you know, what is it that they are um, offering? And when questions are asked, what are they not answering as well? Um, I think that that also kind of goes a long way when, you know, if somebody is incapable of answering a question or doesn't have an answer or doesn't, and and if they don't have an answer, are they going to find out the answer? Are they going to solve the problem or are they going to brush it off? You know? Um, Yeah. And I, and I think that like, I'm also in a lot of ways, you're very sympathetic because questions are scary, right? Questions are really scary. You know, nobody Nobody wants their whole worldview to be shifted, right? That's mm-hmm. a very terrifying and disorienting experience. And and I think that that's, you know, that's important to, like, recognize, too. Um, you know, because, like, I kind of joke, like, it's very much my personality is why I'm like, like this. Like, I think I was just already sort of, uh, you know, preloaded with the software to ask way too many questions. And it definitely helped that my mom you know, the way she talks to me about ideas was always to ask a lot of questions. But I do kind of joke that like, I'm like the five year old who's like always asking why over and over and over again. But it's kind mm-hmm. of also true. where <laughs> I just want to be like, okay, but why? Okay, but why? And I think that we stop after a certain point where we're told that to keep asking is rude, or, you know, mm-hmm. um, maybe, like, there's some kind of like weird thing of like, if you know, better than you won't ask. It's very strange. But I also mm-hmm. understand that the other hand that you know, having your whole perspective of identity and then your world around you, which is usually very closely connected to your personal identity, shattered or questioned, even, even if it's not adjusted, but even just questioned, that's scary. And I get that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're kind of making me uh, chuckle a little bit because, uh, you know, I really like it when my, my, I have three kids. I like it when they ask me questions and I'm like, that's a really thoughtful question. You know, that was really great. I'm so glad that you're, you know, thinking that way. But then sometimes I'm like, okay, so now we need to have like three minutes of quiet time because <laughs> like, <laughs> I just can't like three minutes. Okay. Does everybody be quiet for three minutes? Like I need some like processing time for myself. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, no, I never want them to stop asking questions. Just a little quiet time every once in a while is great. We all need uh, that, I think. Absolutely. I was able to read a little bit of your article from the Baltimore Post-Examiner. It was called the Black Women and Political Activism in America. So what made you want to start writing articles? Wow, I can't believe you guys found that. That's really excellent, really great research. Um, I wrote about that, first of all, because... The specifically the Black Women's Clubs movement is one of my favorite moments at time periods in American history. And one of the things that I think we definitely don't talk about enough, especially because so many, so much um, really came out of that. Um, and I think that that for me is sort of like why I like history and why I love talking about history, because it's very important to me, I think as a person and as, you know, and I think that I would not say that I have, you know, what we would, what one would characterize as like 
you know, like nationalist, like patriotism, but I have a very deep affection for America. And I have a very deep affection for like the American story, but I think we're really bad at telling it. And things like the black women's clubs movement, which had such deep and broad effects in American history is something that is just very personally important to me as an American that we need to be better at talking about. Um, and I wanted to talk about that because the reason I, I had the idea for that article was partially I was taking a black women's um, history class at the time, but also because they had had just this, which I, I talked about in the article a little bit, there was this um, conference and everybody was talking about this political conference or this convention, sorry, not conference, this convention. They were, everybody was talking about this convention is like the first time that, you know, a women's centered convention had been held or the first like political convention. It was like, it definitely was not the first one, like at all, you know, and, and it's so interesting. Like, I think it's important to talk about those firsts, right. And it's really important to talk about, um, the importance of diversity and gender diversity, especially in very public or visible positions of power. But we have to be very careful when we do that, that we're not unintentionally erasing the work that past people have done. Because, you know, we, it's not very, I think, commonly known that the NAACP came entirely out of the work of Black women. Right. Mm -hmm. All of the leaders of the NAACP that we talk about and like the early kind of prominent figureheads of it, right, who are in charge and, and certainly very important, right, in their decision making and their ideas were men, but they were working on the, only primarily off of the work of black women. And so conventions were being held all over the country for decades by black women for the express purpose of political momentum. And it was really startling to me seeing all these articles and all of these thought think pieces and all of these comments about this convention that was being held with not a single person, you know, paying any kind of, you know, homage to the very significant political history that this convention was just a part of, right? This is not a new thing. Black women being involved in politics and black women being incredibly impactful in politics is not a new thing. Right. And when you especially look in areas like the Southwest, right, you have all of these different movements that were like the Chicano movement is a really great example where you have Latinx women completely leading the way. And it's really it's really important to me that when we tell these stories, that we tell them in a way that is respectful and gives place to the people who've done all this really important work that I, I just find like deeply important to talk about. You've changed a lot since I um, last saw you in person in a lot of different ways. Um, do you do you remember when you had the realization that you were assigned the wrong gender at birth? Mm. Um, I I don't know. I mean, it was so for me, it was actually very connected, you know, to something else so i guess i uh you know important you know, mental health trigger warning here but mm -hmm. for me it was very much i was unable to even approach thinking about my gender until after my depression was treated um 
you know, I had been extremely depressed and, you know, suicidal for over a year at that point Mm -hmm. when my depression was finally successfully treated. And it wasn't until then that I was able to begin thinking about things for the first time. I think I had thought about it before, but it was definitely one of the things that depression does is it kind of like makes you not a whole person anymore in a lot of ways. And I think I needed to be a whole person, at least sort of, (laughs) in order to Mm -hmm. start to think about it. Do you think the um, depression was directly or indirectly related to, um, you know, being trans? You know, a lot of trans people that I know have had that experience where transition, either social or medical, has really significantly alleviated their depression. And certainly, I think I'm better equipped to deal with my depression now. But my depression is is just definitely I have clinical depression, you know, it's just mm-hmm. a thing that I will live with forever, you know, whether or not um, in regardless of my of my trans identity, I think that being, you know, for me in particular, medical transition has helped me a great deal. And I think that that has really helped me. Um, it's really equipped me with better tools to deal with my depression as it's come up again, but mm-hmm. it's not something that will go away. Right. Or not something that's going to even kind of like significantly ever decrease because of realizing and figuring out my gender identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, depression is a hard one. Um, I feel like you're always out there on a boat and you can never get to shore, but some days like you're just stuck out there and it's a beautiful day. And some days it's like really, really rocky and there's like a tsunami coming, you know, like it's just, um, yeah, but I definitely, I I can definitely tell you it gets better as you get older, um, and dealing with it. And once you kind of figure out, you know, for me, I I don't even know if there are any triggers. It just like happens like all of a sudden. And that's um, how it is for me too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, and it's really hard on the people that you love because they're just like, what the, you know, what the hell's wrong? What's going on? Like, what's, what's the matter? And you're just like, I just, I can't right now. You know, you just like need to walk away. Like I, I need to be, and when I go through it, I need to be like left alone and kind of like work through it to a point. Mm -hmm. And then I just need somebody to hug me and, you know, say it's going to be okay. And then I can kind of come out of it, but it's, um, yeah, it's definitely, uh, a challenge, but it, I think for me, I found that, um, having like that one person that you can call and talk to when things are really dark, it doesn't necessarily even have to be like a significant other or a parent could be a friend or a, um, another professional or, um, I have the same therapist that I've had since I was 14. So go figure. Um, so I'll just give him a ring and be like, Hey, I'm having a rough time. And, um, but it definitely gets better. Like the, like the instances are shorter and, you know, further space between. So, you know, um, just putting that out there too. Just, I really love that image of the boat. Cause it is like that, you know, and even when it's yeah. a beautiful day though, you're like still all alone. Mm-hmm. I always like to call depression the big liar. Cause it lies to you. That's like kind of what I call it, <laughs> you know, cause like it lies to you about everything. And like, it lies to you in such a profound way that there's never anything that you or anybody else can do to make you not believe the lie. Mm -hmm. right and I think that 
you know, for me, like in particular, like I had thought I would, I had only been depressed for like a year and a half, maybe two years. And it wasn't until I was treated that I was like, oh, like what I thought was my baseline was me just like barely functional. <laughs> so all of a sudden I had like emotions for the first time in like six years, which is really overwhelming too. recovering from depression, especially such a prolonged period of depression was in many ways just as hard as being depressed for me because I felt just constantly battered and overwhelmed with feelings um, or like I didn't know how to have them or handle them and I hadn't experienced them in like so long that they were just really foreign to me um, but I was able but like I wasn't being lied to anymore right my brain wasn't lying to myself anymore and it wasn't until that happened I think that I was able to actually look at the world and myself with more kind of an honest perspective it was really fast I mean like my depression was we finally figured out how to treat it in like January 2017 and by February of that year I was having conversations with friends of mine who were trans um about Mm -hmm. gender and I think by that it was that June that I started testosterone it was Mm -hmm. it was really fast um because it was just I think I was just ready you know I'd been ready for a while but I just wasn't able I just wasn't able to deal with it until my depression was treated first. Wow, that's awesome though. I mean it's great that you got it was able to you were able to get it taken care of so quickly. Um a lot of times people take a lot longer to figure things out. Yeah. It it is one of my friends in particular, he was quite wonderful um for me through the process where it, it's like a thing that like just trans people like find each other, like even if you don't know you're trans yet. You just mm-hmm. end up friends with a lot of other trans people, even if they don't know they're trans yet, when you become friends. It's just a thing that happens. Oh, yeah. Um, and we we were talking at some point, you know, kind of early on, and he he was even the one who kind of brought it up where he was like asked me about how I felt about my gender. And I was like, I'm glad you asked me, because I've been wanting to talk about it. And he kind of like gave me this look. He was like, Storm, how many of your closest friends are trans? I was like, Well, I mean, you know a lot (laughs) a very high number (laughs) almost all most of them almost all of them he was like what do you think that means (laughs) um you know he so he's able to tease me about it but (laughs) i was very lucky to have all those friends because i think without that i still probably wouldn't have figured it out i think Mm -hmm. for me it was like even thinking i think back to like when i was in elementary school actually and when we were when they first did like the baby version of like sex ed in like fifth grade, I remember mm-hmm. doing that and not knowing which one I was supposed to be. I didn't know. Hmm. And I think if I had known trans people existed at that moment in my life, I would have figured it out. But instead they were like, like it somehow figured out. I don't think I asked anybody, but somehow figured out it was supposed to be the girl. And I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, that's fine i guess i'll be that you know? <laughs> you know but like not knowing that that wasn't maybe a normal thing or like a, a typical experience to like not be sure um mm-hmm. so i think of, i reflect on that a lot where where i think that like if i had been exposed to the idea of trans people a lot earlier i would have figured it out a lot earlier um mm-hmm. and it wasn't until later that i was like both exposed to the idea of trans people and my mental health was stable that I was able to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. 
So what you're saying is, is if the library had had more books <laughs> about trans people, then that's what I'm saying. Have read those books. <laughs> I don't know if they had books for kids about trans people 15 years ago. They do now. No, they didn't. Love. Like, yeah, no, the they one, didn't. Uh, about the little little like about the sister who has like a new little brother. Anyway, mm. sorry. A lot of we no, read a I... lot of picture books at the desk at the library to pass the time. Yeah, I feel like I'm a little bit, um, a little bit behind on like the children's, um, you know, books because I, you know, read mostly YA now. But um, right, yeah. I mean, I still read to my kids and stuff, but I typically get books out. It's hard now because you can't go to the library to like browse the shelves, which is so frustrating. Um, but they tell me like the things that they want, and you know, we'll drive by the library, and it's it's actually kind of funny if because um, we, uh, you know, live in Baltimore County. And it's actually kind of kind of funny when you pull up to the library and you like watch some of these librarians coming out, and if somebody has like their back window open, they'll just like literally like fling the book in. <laughs> in the car and then like like walk away as quickly as possible like you know they've got like their masks on and their gloves on they're like all right here you go you know and be on your way that's um, amazing it is it's pretty cool um they're super sweet though and uh you know we appreciate them having that service because i can't keep my kids in books so we go every every week to get something new um that whatever they're interested in my daughter uh, she probably would love to talk to you because she's um, a big history nut and she's only eight so she um, loves to talk about anything uh, history related or famous people and whatnot. So it's really, that's how I have found a renewed uh, interest in history. Well, not even a renewed interest in history, uh, just a general interest in history. Cause I didn't like it before. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Cause she, she loves it so much. I'm like, actually, yeah, this is, this is really kind of cool. Wow. You know, this is awesome. Um, so um, super fun. Um, but I wanted to um, just mention, I think that the reason why I use the boat analogy is because when I was a kid, I had, um, you know, my parents always, I grew up an only child and we did a lot of um, cultural activities. So my mom was very into uh, theater and ballet and musicals and stuff like that. So she would take me to all of these activities. And then my father um, really enjoyed, um, photography and stained glass and like a lot of art things. So we would go to, uh, Washington DC a lot of weekends. Um, and you know, we'd park on the ellipse back when you could park on the ellipse and then, um, walk over to like the national gallery of art or the, um, history, you know, museum. And, um, so we had a, he had bought like this series of, um, prints, uh, by Thomas Cole and it was called the voyage of life. And it was the, you know, um, there were four paintings. You, you have to check it out. But, um, I looked at them like every day, you know, of my childhood. And, um, so I always kind of think of, I always think about the boat as being sort of like a vehicle for a lot of things. Um, but, uh, it goes from, uh, birth to through death in these like four images. Um, and, uh, there's one where, uh, he's getting ready to, um, uh, it was, it's actually called manhood. Um, and he's getting ready to, uh, get kind of like tossed down this through this, like really, uh, rocky area and rough waters. And, um, but it's, uh, his like guardian angel is watching over him up in the clouds, but it's, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a cool, it's a cool, uh, you know, series to, 
to look at if you get the chance. Um, and uh, there's this anyway. I I absolutely have a a giant like over like fanboy obsession with Ursula K. Le Guin, and uh-huh. she's like my my hero. It's a, it's un, it's unacceptable. It's a lot, <laughs> but. <laughs> her imagery is like very powerful and there's in one of her books the left hand of darkness there's this part where it's on this like it's set on this like ice world and there's Mm -hmm. this part where the main character is like trekking through this like very isolated kind of arctic think kind of region and the image in my head of being in like the center of of just nothing you know of just like bright whiteness and snow and cold but just like not even a feature on the landscape and just like how isolating that is and just Mm -hmm. how how skillfully she you know crafts that image for you has always really stuck with me um and has always been a thing that I return to you know when thinking about my depression like and and, you know that image is like that's what it feels like you know and you can't Mm -hmm. be touched right because you're so cold that nothing you can nothing touch that touches you you can even feel Mm -hmm. right i don't know she's she her her imagery like that is just so powerful that it just like lives for so long even you know it's been years since i read that book i think Mm -hmm. um and you know, kind of, I know we kind of go back, back and forth here a little bit. Um, but you had mentioned before about being a, um, a teacher and, um, you know, an, a store, a historian. Um, and now you've been, um, giving talks and sharing information at, um, various libraries in Maryland, uh, about what it means basically to be LGBTQ plus and, um, kind of, uh, defining um, those different terms for people that may not be familiar. Um, what inspired you to take on that educational role? So I kind of came to it a little circuitously, I guess. I, I um, actually started by doing participating in um, the Human Library, um, which if you don't know what that is, it's this wonderful nonprofit that got got started in Denmark and has, you know, spread all around the globe where the idea is that instead of checking out a book, you can check out a person and you can have, you get to have these like 30 minute conversations with a person and, and a person's like book title is always something that you've been like stigmatized for. So I actually, I usually don't talk about being trans at the human library because I started doing it before I figured out I was trans and, and I've continued to talk about what I do talk about is having chronic illness and having mental illness. Um, and I, I've continued to talk about those topics primarily, um, even after transitioning. But I, there's something, there's a kind of magic that happens um, in those conversations that I've always just really loved, where, where the conversation is predicated on on this taboo idea, right? A taboo topic that we don't give a lot of space to talk about, right? Like I talk about you know disability right but like other people who go there do talk about being trans or being or being gay or or being a widow or you know having brain trauma or surviving sexual assault or having autism or i mean just like the list is so long like you know all these different 
wonderful people coming and bringing their stories and talking about their stories where 30 minutes like doesn't seem like very long but it's like kind of the perfect amount of time where where you have this you just have this kind of like really intense transformative experience with this other person and I really get so much out of doing it and I've been doing them for almost four years now um and I do events you know, as, as often as I can whenever I can just because I really get as much out of it as the readers who come right and I I often especially in the like one-on-one sessions will spend just as much time listening as I do talking and I really love that about these experiences where it's it's a sharing not just me kind of teaching and after you know having done that I would be, I had been doing the human library events for a few years when kind of the idea for the need for the sort of workshop that I do now kind of started and I decided you know because at first I kind of went looking online for like videos or like other people doing this kind of training to see kind of what was out there and everything I found was just it was just not helpful <laughs> like everything was very like this is what this word means and this is what this word means and like half the time the definitions they gave were first of all like wrong <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they, but the other half of the time I'm just like who is this helping right like we're just telling people to memorize a bunch of stuff like that's not actually it's like like I I know so many people I guarantee can just memorize the definitions to all these words but it won't actually change their behavior or their outlook right or their relationships mm-hmm. with the people around them and the thing that I think is magic about the human library and, and that I always got out of that experience is it's really important to me to kind of not assume that people can't get it right Like, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to assume that people can't understand. In a lot of ways, if you're not trans, you're never going to understand what it's like to be trans, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not asking for that. I'm I'm not even trying to explain that. I would not, I don't, I'm not setting out to try and explain what it feels like to be trans because it's just not going to work. But what I am going to do is try and explain that gender doesn't work the way you think it does. And I'm not just going to assume that you're not going to be able, you know, that the person I'm talking to isn't smart enough to be able to get it because I think that's just incredibly dismissive and and patronizing and and I think that a lot of the very well-intentioned kind of LGBT 101-ish kind of trainings out there take that attitude of just assuming that people aren't ready for the the harder topics or aren't ready for more information Um, and I don't think that's helpful for anybody actually Mm -hmm. at all and so I set out to kind of do this workshop the first time is really just kind of a one-off um, you know, when I, I did it at the, at the library that I worked at at the time. And I had such a good experience doing the workshop. That's when I decided to keep doing them and to do them again, because people, I, I kind of like to joke this, but it is true where people really do, they come to my workshop thinking that they need some, they need one thing, but they really don't need that. They, they need something different, right? Like people come to my workshops thinking that they need those definitions right and thinking that they need to know what the words mean and thinking that they need like a list of vocab words and instructions of like how to be polite and not mess up but Mm -hmm. what I what I give them and what I what is really important to me to give them is to actually sort of talk bigger about shifting the lens that we have that tells us how things like gender and sexuality work right whether you're straight or cisgender or gay or trans, right? In general, it how does it work? And that's what I talk about. And 
we do go over a lot of words, right? And we do talk about a lot of definitions, but by the time we get to that, and by the time we get to talking about what those words mean, it's much, much easier for people to understand it because I've spent so much time talking through the kind of bigger ideas. Um, And I've never, I mean, I've had people come in the door who, you know, I had a guy once who was like, yeah, I just heard the workshop announced over the loudspeaker in the library. I don't know what this is about. Like he couldn't tell me what any of the words in LGBT meant, right? He's like starting from nothing, but people are ready for it, right? Like they really are. If you trust somebody to follow with you with what you're teaching them, they will follow you, you know? And, and I, and I think that that's that trust, like I'm giving my students trust just as much as they're giving me trust in return. And that, I think that attitude towards learning is something that came directly for me from the human library and from extending trust to my readers and extending that vulnerability to my readers where I carry that kind of same perspective and attitude to when I teach my workshops. Can you share about defining sexual and gender identities? Sure. Um, so I can do that. Um, just like a, like a mini blurb, I guess. Um, well, I think that the first of all, like the most important thing that I like to start with is kind of just the idea that everybody has a gender identity, whether or not they know it. <laughs> and and that can be sometimes difficult. Um, one of the other things that when it, usually the very first thing that I talk about in my workshop is kind of the word queer and what it means. And the reason I start with the word queer is because I think that it sort of sets the right expectations for when I define things like gender and sexuality, because I say the words like it's complicated, like a thousand times over the course of, over the course of two hours. And the reason I do that is because it's really also important to me to be really honest. Mm -hmm. And so having, you know, a firm for sure concrete definition of what does gender mean and what does sexuality mean is not possible. That doesn't exist. And that has to be okay. Right. That ambiguity is really scary. um, And I recognize that. Um, and is often really feels unapproachable, right? Like that kind of ambiguity feels very unapproachable for people, but part of being comfortable with, um, an expanded perspective, right. On what gender and sexuality can mean, means being comfortable with that, with not knowing, right. And with ambiguity like that because Mm -hmm. the number one rule is always that everyone is an expert on themselves always no matter what and that's really really hard for people um really hard because it's very ingrained the idea and this the super importance of empathy is very ingrained in us where like i mean just like think about it but like put yourself in their shoes or like walk a mile in their shoes or think about it from their perspective i mean all these kinds of phrases that we kind of throw around when we're trying to be supportive i think are actually not super helpful because you can't always do that you can't always understand what their perspective is or put yourself in their position and the the most important thing is to actually listen to what they're saying about what their perspective is and to allow the other person the expertise on to know themselves the best, right? So mm-hmm. even when I define gender and sexuality, right, it's complicated. <laughs> and, you know, right. that's not going to be like the for sure definition that I want anyone to walk away with and to use, you know, t- to prove anything else wrong. Because um, 
the rule is always like everyone's an expert on themselves. So when we think about gender, a question that a big important thing that uh, I always get asked is what's the difference between gender and sex? And very controversially, I will tell you there is not one. And the reason I will tell, tell you that is because it's very important to remember that the idea that we are taught in high school about how biological sex is one of two boxes is first of all like not actually accurate science it's like not good science we know that's not how bodies work Mm -hmm. but that in of itself the idea of biological sex being one of two things is just as much of a social construct as gender identity being one of two things so separating gender and sex into different boxes and saying okay well you can have a biological sex is one thing and a gender identity is something else is not productive um, because it's still maintaining this like falsehood of biological sex, even just sort of existing the way that our culture decides that it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something, you know, scientifically and anthropologically we've known for a long time. I mean, in my, in my work in school and studying, I've read papers from 30 years ago, right? 30 years ago, talking about how we understand that biological sex is not binary. And it's just so frustrating to me to read these papers and read these books that are so old. And yet where you're still kind of arguing about this, right? Mm -hmm. Like bodies that matter by Judith Butler came out in 1992. And that book is a whole book, a whole book about that's like very respected and and a very important and landmark book in its research, right, about how biological sex is a social construct, right, and just as much of a social construct as anything else. Um, and that's from 1992. So I guess, like, to to start, I will say that, like, the difference between sex and gender is that there's not one. So I always we use typically the word gender, mm-hmm. right? But okay. gender identity can be just anything you want it to be, mm-hmm. you know? And if your gender identity, if you have a gender identity that aligns with your gender identity you were assigned at birth, then that means you're cisgender. If you have a gender identity that is anything other than what you were assigned at birth, then that means you're transgender. That's what those words mean. So everybody can choose to have a gender identity or they can have no gender identity, which is typically used the word um, agender is, is the typical word that you'll see to mean that they don't have a gender at all. But mm-hmm. when I say gender it can be anything you want it to be, it really can. You know, there's not a limit on what you can decide your gender is. Because I can guarantee if you have a whole room full of all cisgender people, even all cisgender people who identify as the same gender, each one of them has a different gender identity and has a different relationship with their gender. Um, and that kind of idea of thinking about your gender and your sexuality both as, as something you have a relationship with, I think is a much more healthy way to kind of think about it as opposed to something you have to define because define sounds very static right mm-hmm. whereas really mm-hmm. it's something that grows over time just because people grow over time and humans grow right we all kind of change and that's good so having like a relationship with your gender is much more important than being able to like define your gender you make a lot of really valid points I mean, I'm just kind of like sitting here and like looking and like thinking and I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah, I get that. Okay. You know? Um, I hope it makes sense. That's my goal always. It does does make sense. Um, 
but we I think we are also in a society of you know having to have like a clear identifiers you know when you fill out your uh, uh, you know filling out that birth certificate and like filling out the um, you know information for social security or you know job applications and there's I feel like they're gathering you know the you know society in general wants all this data you know like we employ you know 54 percent of our staff are female or you know, fifty uh, percent are are black and Hispanic, and as opposed to fifty percent white. You know, like I feel like they want to have like the this uh, this data. You know, people in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, you know, what do you see like that box looking like? So just a, mm. a box for gender, and then like what options would there be? Like if I'm thinking from like a data perspective of how we could categorize people, right? Like yeah. how would we how would we do that? That's a really good question. Um, I think that it depends on what the goal is. And I think that there are two primary goals that that sort of data collection is typically looking for. Um, the first goal is how do you how do I best respect you, right? How do I best show respect? And that's where you're filling out a form and you have your name and then maybe your pronouns, right? Mm-hmm. So pronouns mm-hmm. and gender identity are not the same. Pronouns mm-hmm. do not equal gender identity ever. Right. And keeping that in mind is really important because you can't make assumptions about someone's gender identity based on their pronouns, just like you can't make assumptions of someone's pronouns based on their gender identity or gender presentation. Um, and so if a goal is, how do I best respect you, right? That's where instead of asking what someone's gender is, you should be asking what are their pronouns. Mm-hmm. If the goal is being having data numbers on inclusivity, right? And like on having an idea of, you know, what does the diversity of this population look like? That's where you kind of need to ask kind of more questions, right? Because what you're asking there is about lived experience. So the priority there is actually lived experience more than even gender identity. So thinking about, okay, is your goal, right? Like having women and making sure you know, feminine aligned gender identities are represented appropriately? Or is your goal asking how many non cisgender men are in the room, right? Which I think is like, often more commonly the question that people really want to know the answer to. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, not just how many non cisgender men are in the room, but then of those people, what what identities are represented. And that's where you can kind of if you frame it as what is the lived experience of a person as opposed to kind of what is the gender identity, I think it'll be, it's easier to come up with better boxes or better data collection sources. Um, But this is also, also something that changes all the time, you know, and that it has to be okay that it changes, right? Anything from more than two or three years ago about gender is wrong, is out of date. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just how fast things move. And that's not a bad thing right? Because we are defining ourselves in the moment and define self-definition and, and self-naming is an incredibly powerful thing. And it's important to give people that power, to let people have that power. So you don't think there's anything wrong with things changing that quickly, but I do recognize kind of the difficulties of the necessity of data collection like that. But that's where you're like, you know, if I was talking to a nonprofit, nonprofits have to collect a lot of internal data about who works there just for their grant purposes and like for different things that's where I would ask like okay what is the priority here in terms of the specific context that we're talking about right and then also how do you ask a question you need to make sure you're asking questions about a person's lived experience and more so than 
kind of more private questions about their identity. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It's a lot to unpack there, you know. Um, but I think it's good. And, um, you know, hopefully we can go more in that direction. I know I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, how even information just, you know, from two years ago is probably inaccurate now as far as gathering, uh, you know, data. Um, and, uh, I just remember, you know, when my daughter started school, having to fill out like the form where you have to put like mother's name and father's name. And I'm like, come on people, really? Like, are we still going that direction? Like, I mean, even in your own experience, you said, you know, my parents, when I refer to my parents, I'm talking about my mom and my grandmother. So in a sense, you know, you should have like an option for just to put in like, who are the parents, you know, um, rather than there's a mother and there's a father having that like assumption. Um, yeah. So I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that one of the things that's so important to keep in mind is anytime any kind of effort to be more inclusive is made, everyone benefits. Period. Right. Everybody. Right. So working on being more inclusive and more, you know, um, like using better language in reference to gender and sexuality doesn't just benefit the queer community and doesn't just benefit queer people. It benefits everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. So like if I growing up had been able to fill out forms for just who are my grownups, right? Not no. my mom and my dad, that would have benefited me a great deal and would have made me feel more seen instead of having to like cross out dad and write grandma or often I honestly usually just didn't even write grandma, even though she was one of my parents. Last week, um, we actually, Gabriel and I spoke with uh, Dr. Dana Beyer about her experiences and um, advocacy work for transgender rights and also for her work with uh, marriage equality. What do you see as kind of the next step in advocating for this newer generation of um, trans and um, NB people? Um, I think that actually we could take a really big cue from... I think that we should be taking a lot of cues from the disability advocacy work that's been done um, in the last mm-hmm. several decades, specifically the autistic community. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the big things that you saw in autistic advocacy was this huge prominence of parents in the beginning. Um, and then, you know, this phrase, nothing about us without us, came from that movement where you had autistic people going, hey, like maybe I'm the expert on what it's like to be autistic and not my parents, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, absolutely. And I think that we are still over-medicalizing the experience of being trans and assuming that the only trans people worth talking about are children. And one of the things that does is A, erase the voices of the trans children involved, pretends that trans adults don't exist outside of a medical context, And then on top of that, assume that the people who have like, who are the best experts on talking about what it's like to be trans are doctors and parents. And I think that having this, there's a really necessary shift that needs to happen and that we need to, that we're, that we're starting to talk about more. But I think that especially when it comes to trans youth and listening to trans youth, we need to move more towards this nothing about us without us kind of model and and engage in the kind of really assertive um self-advocacy like you've seen within the autistic community in terms of self-defining and you're rebuking the idea that parents are experts because they're not 
you know, and, and the appropriate sort of voice, the appropriate place that ally voices have in this conversation, um, I think is, is what I see as, as the most important thing, um, for trans, for the trans community. Yeah. That's a great, um, I mean, I think that's a great point and a great direction to go in, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think that, unfortunately, I think that we, um, have discounted children for far too long, um, in general, um, whether that be from any community, um, you know, I come from the generation of be seen and not heard, you know, um, visiting the, uh, the, the great aunts and uncles and, you know, being present as a child, but sitting there and not having a voice, um, you know, which in some ways, yeah, it was a bummer, but in other ways it was, uh, interesting because you were there just kind of absorbing the information and, uh, really kind of taking it all in and listening to, to other people's stories, um, which was cool. Um, you learned a lot that way because people often forgot that you were there. So <laughs> they're like, Oh really? I had no idea, you know? Love it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think it's really important for, um, kids to, you know, be able to share their stories and for adults to listen. Um, that's not to say that it's not beneficial to have an adult that's in your corner who's advocating for you, but, um, you know, being able to explain what you're feeling and experiencing is extremely important. Um, and kids are, kids are so smart. And I think that we don't tell kids they're smart in the Mm -hmm. right context right it's just performance in school or you know there are appropriate ways to be smart when you're a kid but like then inappropriate ways to be smart and i know i was an obnoxious kid and that's all right like i I did not think you were obnoxious for the record i'm glad to hear that i'm glad to hear that because like you know i was very lucky that you know having a single mom right and having my grandma around and then my mom's friends around i was around like primarily adults a lot and my mm-hmm. mom never took that like be seen and not heard attitude with me. Like she always included me in conversations and, you know, always was really good about speaking to me, even while teaching me like as a peer and like wanting to know what I had to say and what I thought about things. And I think that really sort of set a precedent for me um, in good and bad ways. <laughs> I think oh, right, right. I wasn't ever able to turn that off <laughs> either, yeah. but I, I I was very lucky to have that because I think that allowed me to kind of have more confidence in my own feelings. But I think that we should also do the same, like for, for all kids, right? Like listen to what they have to say. Yeah. And that's the difference, you know, from one generation to the other too. That's not, you know, absolutely not necessarily that my mom wouldn't have done that. I just, just don't think that that was a common generational thing you know for for boomers to do i remember you mentioning that you are currently studying history what um what plans do you have after um you finish at university of maryland um i would like i want to go into academia right so it's going to be grad school for me um so i'll just be in school forever essentially (laughs) is the plan um and then you know hopefully try and get in a place where I can do research as well as write and teach, you know, in a a university setting. Mm -hmm. Good goals. I mean, and, you know, 
being a lifelong student, I think that's a good goal to have. <laughs> I mean, I am, I, you know, I keep, I find myself keep going back every couple of years, like, okay, what am I going to learn next? You know? If um, I could, I'd do it forever. I would. Absolutely. I love it. I love school. I love learning. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I mean, provided that you take things that you're, I guess two, two things, if you can take something that you're interested in and, or you have a really good teacher, um, yeah. I definitely, you know, I've definitely had some bad teachers and I'm pretty sure that if, if the teachers that I had were better, that I would have really enjoyed the subject, but, um, you know, teachers definitely, uh, can make or break the class for sure. For sure. So do you have any plans for continuing or maybe even branching out with some of your education and advocacy work that you've been doing for the LGBTQ plus community? Um, I'd really like to, um, so I, I actually just booked doing my workshop for the Maryland Library Association uh, yearly annual conference next spring, which I'm really excited about. That's awesome. Um, I'd really like to continue to do the workshops and I'd really like to, I kind of sort of see the place, I guess, like the role of the workshops that I do is like step one, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to me, an organization or a company um, or you know, even an individual, right, on a personal basis, I think that the the place that my workshop has is being, you know, step one of approaching increasing inclusion, right, and increasing diversity. So mm-hmm. what I would like to be able to do is take that to nonprofits or com- corporations, organizations that want to make um, being more inclusive, either internally or externally of the queer community a goal of theirs and be able to bring my workshop and, um, you know, consulting to those organizations as a, a starting point for them. Hmm. That's a great idea. I mean, I could see that being like in demand for a lot of places. I mean, I feel like, you know, we could even use that like in the school system. Um, and I know like tons of companies are, don't probably could use that as a some assistance as well um i know you know for my wife her job is not very i mean she she didn't even talk about or mention me at all like until we had kids so (laughs) you know like yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so because then it's like unavoidable right like oh hey i need to take off work because you know my kid's sick what you had a kid like when did that happen like well no i didn't but my wife did you know like yeah um so um, I've, I've, my yeah. mom has total permission to do this, but, um, you know, because we, we've talked about it before, but I definitely know that for for new people in the office, like she she came home once and or she came over to my house once and was like, there's a person, there's a new guy in my office and he only uses gender neutral pronouns to refer to his spouse. <laughs> so she will often like intentionally kind of bring up me and then my advocacy work or you know oh, yeah. related to the queer community or, or whatever just to be like this is okay we're okay here you're safe right and oh, she, yeah. she was so excited when she like I something she like did that I think and then the next day he like mentioned his husband or something and she was like so excited she was like I did it oh <laughs> yeah that's awesome your mom is so cool She's great. um yeah that's fabulous so Looking back, how did your experience at Hammond High help you um, shape your future? Now you can you can be 
you know, completely honest with this. It doesn't have to be a positive thing, Storm. So, okay. you know. <laughs> I, I heard that, that, you know, that pregnant pause and I'm like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, I, I had some very good teachers when I was at Hammond. <laughs> um, you know, shout out to like Mr. Burke and Mr. Gravenstein for sure. Um, and specifically for, for history and government, um, especially Mr. Burke, like I, he retired right after I left and, um, you know, he was, he taught, I know now he taught basically a college level history course to us in ninth grade, but he's such a good teacher that he could do it. You know, he could do whatever he wanted. (laughs) Um, and that was the first time I'd been exposed to history on such a nuanced level. Um, and, you know, now that I think about it, as I say that, I think that that was also another great example of him kind of trusting us to understand, you know, because he's never shy about saying when stuff was complicated or when stuff, you know, mm-hmm. wasn't black and white. Um, and I always really loved and respected that about him. Um, you know, he, I think, in that class really shaped a lot of how I thought about history and, and really built a positive relationship to history for me. Um, and that was really significant. Um, I ended up, I actually dropped out of Hammond. I dropped out of high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And I dropped out because at the time that I was there, which was, you know, now over 10 years ago, um, I have, like I said, so I do human library stuff for chronic illness. And Hammond at that moment was unwilling to work with us um, in a way that allowed me to get the accommodations that I needed. the county was also completely just writ like the the county central IEP department just completely dropped the ball with me um in terms of getting me the support that I needed mm-hmm. um unfortunately you know we had uh, as much as I had really great experiences with some of my teachers you know some of my other teachers would you know we had um the Kennedy Krieger Institute sent a nurse to Hammond for free to kind of educate them on my disability and, and why certain stuff was so difficult to me and and in the same meeting I'd have teachers say to me like well storm sometimes you just need to try harder right sometimes being an adult is doing things even when they're hard right even you know Mm -hmm. I was really sick right I had a very serious medical issues that really prevented me from doing a lot of things um Mm -hmm. this is very frustrating like having you know, having both of those, right? Like actually genuinely loving some of my teachers and like having such a good experience in some of their classes, but feeling like I was being prevented from learning, right? And being prevented from enjoying school because of stuff that was out of control. Yeah. And it's obvious, I mean, in talking to you and, you know, I've known you for so long. I mean, like you're extremely intelligent. Um, And, you know, I'm sure that was super frustrating and that people couldn't see like hey this is a really really smart kid who can do the work and is able to do the work when they're you know in a better place you know um and is like looking back now kind of like on that experience because I feel like you know we're always on a path to grow and learn from experiences and I'm grateful very grateful that you're you know, story has such a positive um, ending yet beginning, you know, um, for you. But 
I know other people are not as quite as fortunate. Um, how can like the school system, like what could they have done differently that would have been better? Do you think that would have made your time easier that you wouldn't have, you know, dropped out of, of high school? I mean, just listen, you know, I mean, just like I talked about before, right. In terms mm-hmm. of gender and sexuality, everyone is the expert on themselves. Mm-hmm. I talk about that a lot too, in terms of disability, right? Like I know my body best because I live in it and we sort of have this instinctive reaction to disability where if I say these are my needs, right? Mm-hmm. People always kind of want to like problem solve it with me. Like they want to be like, is that really your need? What about this? Is this better? How would this work? When it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I actually maybe know what my needs are, right? Like I can actually tell right. you what they are. I don't need your help problem solving this situation because it's been problem solved right? I'm actually the expert since I live in this body 24 seven, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would, we'd have stuff like, I mean, it's just, just listening to me saying what are my needs and what I'm capable of is just like step one and wasn't step one wasn't even happening, let alone allowing me to get the things that I needed. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was, um, because of the way my sleep disorder works and the way it was especially back then getting up early is something that is not possible for me like the way my body works we don't really have an understanding of why that is the case but Mm -hmm. no matter how many hours I sleep I will never be able to wake up consistently before like 9 a.m maybe (laughs) and it was even way worse back in high school and you know high school it starts at like 7 15 in the morning right it's not a good combination so I had was on home and hospital for the first several periods of the day and I wasn't going into school until I think like fourth period um, for mm-hmm. at this time. And so I was just mm-hmm. going to the last, to just fourth, fifth and sixth periods. And then on, it was actually on my birthday, I had a doctor's appointment in Northern Virginia, like an hour and a half away. And as a special treat, because it was so far away, we had to leave super early to get there. But then also because of my birthday, my mom took me out to the bagel bin, which used to be in the King's Contrivance Village Center, which I still mourn the, the <laughs> loss of. It's been gone yeah. for years and it was so good. Um, she like took me to the bagel bin to pick up like breakfast sandwiches on her way down to Virginia. And in a meeting about my IEP, an administrator at the time was like, well, Storm was seen at the bagel bin at nine o'clock in the morning. So why can't Storm come to school? Oh no. (laughs) And we just like, I think both mom and I were just like, we just like couldn't respond for a few minutes. We were just in shock. We were like, why would you think that was an appropriate thing to say? But I mean, that's just such like the level of disbelief that I know what my needs are, right? Like I can't consistently get up very early in the morning, but once in a blue moon, right? And I'm talking like once in a blue moon, once a month, maybe if I need to go somewhere, I can really forced myself to do it but I paid for it right like I was I came home and immediately went to sleep like because I was so exhausted from getting up so early mm-hmm. um it's not something I can do a lot and not something I could do especially then very much but it was just like just such this like strange level of like deep-seated suspicion that everything was interrogated and everything was questioned you know I wasn't allowed to actually be honest about what I needed and have that be like have that positive intent you know on my part be sort of mm-hmm. assumed mm-hmm. 
Oh man, that's unfortunate. Um, but I mean, I think that that's a lot to, you know, grow from hopefully, um, for, you know, educators to be able to hear that and listen and understand, you know, the value of just taking the time to, to listen and hear what kids needs are. Um, and I think it's even harder, um, you know, you were always a vocal kid being able to, you know, say, you know, what was on your mind or what your needs were, but there's a lot of kids out there that don't even vocalize that at all. Like, you know, um, so I feel for them that they're, you know, quiet on the, on the matter. Yeah. I think about that a lot because I was a really vocal kid, you know, and I've always been really assertive and, even with that, you know, I know we know now more than we did then, but we know now that I spent many years really sick without knowing because mm-hmm. I really did think that like everybody around me was just as tired as I was all the time, but had somehow figured out what they needed to figure out in order to get things done. Like I really thought it was just me. Like I couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's from a kid, like, as you said, right. Who was, and who still is just really vocal and assertive and, you know, and, yeah, much more so than than other people my age. And part of the problem for me in particular was that so many of my symptoms from the outside just look like laziness, which I think is very often the case with chronic illness, mm-hmm. um, where I really do worry about the kids who aren't the really loud, assertive vocal overachievers. You know, if a kid just suddenly starts to kind of get more lazy from it, then that's the external kind of assumption of what's going on. They're not going to get help. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, well, hopefully, um, I mean, I, I, it's been inspiring to, to talk to you today and, um, listen to your story and, um, you know, learn more about kind of like what was going on in the background. Um, cause you know, I would see you, uh, you know, obviously all the time in elementary school and then high school, um, you know, not quite so much cause you were out a lot. So, um, I didn't, I didn't really know the story, um, you know, as much just because students, um, you know, IEPs and, um, that personal information is not shared, you know, with people that are not like a direct teacher. And even so, like, you know, if it's not in the IEP, it doesn't get shared. So if there's something else going on at home, like teachers are unaware unless either the parent or the student tells them, um, so, you know, that's something else, um, that I struggle with as an educator is like, you know, I think it would be really, it would be really helpful. Like if we did know more about students, um, yeah. I, I mean, well, I understand. Educators didn't have to be everything, you know? Social yeah, that's true. And medical professional and therapist. and <laughs> Yeah. So. All those things too, for sure. But, um, you know, I, I think I find it more helpful when I can, um, when a student does come to me and tell me like, Hey, you know, this happened or, you know, this person in my family just passed away or because we don't get that information otherwise. Um, you know, unless it's something really, really extreme that affects the entire school community, um, like a student death, then we, you know, we know about that, but otherwise we don't, um, we're not necessarily informed about that. So, um, but yeah, I found, you know, talking to you is super inspiring. So um, hopefully um, some people that are listening will also find some inspiration and um, get that extra 
um, motivation to, you know, speak up and speak out and um, get support that they need. Um, I hope so. I hope, I think that one of the things we don't do a very good job at in general is kind of giving space for that kind of vulnerability, sharing those kinds of vulnerable stories. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's something I've learned how to do more by through the human library and being vulnerable there. And something I didn't know how to do in high school. I, I didn't know how to be vulnerable that way and tell anybody about what was going on. Right? I hadn't learned how mm-hmm. to do that yet. Um, and I hope that something that I hope that people do more and think about more is it is something that you have to practice just like anything else. And even just like having this conversation with you, right? Like or having mm-hmm. the conversation with anybody in my life, practicing being vulnerable that way with the people who are close to me is a really good way to practice being vulnerable with people who you need to be assertive with your, of your needs with. Mm-hmm. Right. It helps you learn how to advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. Um, especially, especially now more than ever. Um, well, thank you so much for um, joining us today on the Pridecast. And um, I can't wait to see, uh, you know, what things look, for, look like for you in the future storm. Thank you. Thanks. This has been great. The music featured at the start and end of our podcast is Work by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license.